Hello, everybody. This is Bill Knauer, and you're listening to Author to Author, where we talk about writing and life. Because what it takes to write the book you want to write is also what it takes to lead the life you want to lead. It's true. Author to Author is brought to you by Author Magazine, premier free writing magazine on the internet featuring authors on writing and the writing life, just what it is to be a writer and what you go through, as well as video interviews with best-selling and award-winning authors across the genres. Yes, across the genres. We've got a young adult author up there now, Maureen McQuarrie. Fascinating book. Published a, work, uh, published a novel based somewhat on her family's history. Grandfather was a flu orphan. You ever heard of those? That's right. They were orphans because of the great flu epidemic around 1918, and he was one of those. Anyway, fascinating interview. Cool story. Check it out at magazine.org. We're also funded by the fabulous Pacific Northwest Writers Association. They've been supporting writers from pen to publication since 1955. Doing it a long time. Great conference every year. I'm going to be there. I'm going to be teaching a class at the conference called Everyone Has What It's Bunking the Talent Myth. That's right. It's going to be all kinds. It's going to be master classes, lots of agents and editors if you're into that sort of thing. It's really worth it. It's great. If you live in the Northwest or even if you live abroad, some people make the trip. They do. So come check it out. PNWA.org. That's where it is. All right. Let's get to this. We've got a poet on today. I've been looking forward to this one. Michael Dylan Welch. Michael has been investigating haiku and uh, related poetry since 1976. He founded his press, called Press Here, clever, I think, in 1989, and co-founded Haiku North America in 1991, and the American Haiku Archives in 1996. He founded the Tonka Society, America in 2000 and the Seebeck Haiku Getaway 2008 and National Haiku Writing Month, uh, sort of like NaNoWriMo, in 2010. Michael was keynote speaker, keynote for the 2013 Haiku International Association Convention in Tokyo, and he has published his poetry, essays, and reviews in hundreds of journals and anthologies in more than 20 languages and has published a whole bunch of books, and he's with us today. And I couldn't be happier. Michael, welcome to the show. Glad to be here. Thank you for having me. All right, Michael. So you've been investigating, thinking about writing, talking about haiku for, I can't do the math in my head, but a long time. 40-something years, right? Yes. Uh, and I hasten to add that the first 12 years of writing haiku, I wrote them very, very badly because wow. I had such misinformation about the about the poetry and, and how it worked. Uh, and then things began to change. All right. So 76, you got you got into it, but you were no good at. It. Now, what were some of the misinformation you had? What were some of the first things you had to unlearn? So, yeah, I learned haiku in high school and I was told to count syllables. 575. Right. And that's yeah. what all of us were taught. And I think any, anyone who approaches haiku that way uh, typically begins that way. So I don't want to hold that against them. However, <laughs> that form tended to obscure other things that were more important in haiku that I didn't realize. And yeah. I think that's true for most people in writing in English. Uh, they don't realize there are other more important targets. And they don't realize necessarily 
why 575 can be problematic in English. Right, because it's Japanese poetry form first, yeah. I mean, it started there. Yes. Not, not any, right. And so it had to be tran- – And so, but does that form – we're just going to dive right in because I, I have to tell you, so that when I was introduced to haiku, I was like, no way am I – can I – because I did my really, – I really learned to write, I think, in a way when I got into poetry in my early 20s. I think I freed my voice up and I understood about but I wasn't going to go near the haiku because I couldn't bear the idea of the limitation and the, the hold me back, man. I got to just go where I want to go. So does that form through no matter what, 575, or is that just a starting place? It's a possible starting place, and obviously it's a starting place in Japanese. But the question right. is, what should the starting place be in English? One thing I will say about the restrictions, which – some people are wired for that. Some people are not. I would right. say that the restriction is uh, something that allows you or even even inspires uh, creativity. It's within the restriction yeah. that you learn to be creative in the same same way with the sonnet and the rhyme scheme and the, the metrical pattern. You come up with creative ways to solve endless solution, uh, yeah. endless questions. Um, and one way I've heard it described is uh, it's like the sumo ring. It's uh-huh. you, you, you do the sumo wrestling within that ring, and as soon as you step out, the match is over. Um, right. But it's what you do within that ring that's, that's endlessly creative. I would just say that the discipline of haiku, the nature of that ring, is misunderstood in English. And the, the fundamental misunderstanding is the assumption of syllables. When they have never counted syllables in Japanese haiku, never have, that's just not, not what they're, they're counting. Oh, so oh my, because that's you know the only thing I knew about the haiku were the syllables. That was the one and only thing that was ever okay. So let's back up a little bit. Uh, okay, so how old were you when when you got in? You're in high school. So you're in high school now. Were you yeah. okay, were you interested in writing already when they when they introduced to you when you first were said okay write a haiku everybody write a haiku. Did you I, did you already were you already leaning towards? I I was named after Dylan Thomas. Uh, ah. Uh, so I had a poetic sort of understanding even as a wow. kid and wrote short poetry as a kid. So when I um, – it was a natural thing to write poetry for, for English classes and so on in, in high school. And so when okay. the haiku was introduced to me, it was just another thing that I started writing. It wasn't really a specialty, but I did write it regularly. Um, mm. It was just – I preferred short poetry, so it fit that well. Uh, but again, I was just taught to count syllables. Uh, yeah. I may have been told that it was a nature poem, but even that is slightly misleading. Um, right. Most people are never taught the other other things. And for 12 years, all of my haiku were perfect 575 ditties. Yeah. And they all had titles, which haiku also don't have. And uh, <laughs> all the poems really had no idea what they were doing. Right. But you had to be learning something. Here's the thing. Don't you think, like, I, I'm a little philosophical about it, but I feel like it's wasted. Like, nothing ever I do is wasted, even the stuff that are, like, I will never use again and I throw away. You must have been learning something besides how not to write a haiku for those first 12 years. I agree. Nothing is wasted. It's, um, it was an experience of um, having the arrow in my quiver as I perceived that arrow. And so it was something that I wrote. And um, right. I had a discipline for it without realizing there are harder and more important disciplines that I was completely missing. Um, right. 
but but uh, concision, uh, compression, um, focusing on on an instant. Those were all lessons that be, I began to learn for sure. Sure, sure. And and so, but something must have drawn you to it. I mean, even though you didn't think you were doing it well, you were doing it. There's a lot of different things that a person who likes to write can write. It doesn't have to be haiku. So there must have been something about that short form that you know. And I should say that I. The other place I really learned to write was by writing a 400-word essay every day, five days a week for many years. And giving myself that limitation absolutely enhanced my idea of storytelling because I had no time, and it was very useful. But and what, hard what, to limit hard to limit yourself to 400 words. Oh, <laughs> absolutely. You know, let me just crank. And eventually, gave myself more breathing room. But for a while, I held myself to that, and it was really a great lesson in storytelling particularly because I used to, I'd, I'd written novels before that. And so there was no limit on what I could do. So it was really good. Uh, so there you are. So you must've been drawn to the, you must've been drawn to the, the, the conciseness of, of whether you were doing it. Correctly. There must've been something about that brevity that, and that one moment kind of thing that attracted you. There, I actually, I'm not sure that there was because I would write anything. I would write limericks. I would write longer uh, poems. Okay. I'd write rhyming poems, free verse, just, just anything, and would write right. essays and so on. Um, it was just a natural thing for me to do. I was involved in the school yearbook, so I was editing text for that and writing text right. for that, and um, involved with school newspapers. So, just anything to do with the writing was a, an attraction to me. But I tended to write short poetry, so haiku was just one of those. Um, sure. Speaking of discipline, by the way, to back up to something you, you about your 400-word essays, yeah. this year I've given myself the challenge of writing one new poem a day. Yeah. And I've been following a daily prompt, and uh, my rule is not to write, not to count any haiku or other short poems. They have to be longer poems. And oh. there's something... There's a different kind of discipline to this. It's not the discipline of the form and how you write within a form or a perceived form, but the discipline of making sure you write every day. Yeah. And uh, I recall William Stafford saying that um, if he didn't like what he was writing every day as his writing practice, well, he just lowered his standards, <laughs> which, is, which has been very, very empowering for me. Just write. You know, sometimes yeah. it'll click, sometimes it won't. Yeah. And I found that for writing haiku every day, too. Um, not that I do it quite every day, but just for writing regular haiku regularly is write the impressions, the, the, the senses, the experiences you have. And it's a percentage game. Um, yeah. So much of life is. And some things will rise to the top and others won't. It's definitely been true of, of what I've been writing in longer poetry. Yeah, you know, what? I, my rule for myself when I was doing those essays every day, because I was writing other stuff too, I was like, I'm not going to spend two hours writing this 400 words. I can't, I got other things to do with my life. And so I only gave myself 40 minutes. And it, 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 what happened was I got, and I, but what I could do in 40 minutes got better and better and better. And I was less of a perfectionist and I tap into something quicker and quicker. It was a great discipline. I felt like my writing improved so much in so many nuanced ways over those years. I, that's definitely true, and it's true of haiku. You, you tend to write better haiku the more experience you have with it. You know, yeah, you, sure. you don't make false, false moves. It's like a chess master. <laughs> they don't even think of making illegal moves, right, let, alone, right, right. let alone bad moves. 
And right. I have also found something else with writing the longer poetry with this daily discipline. I've written lots of longer poems before, but the discipline that I'm doing this year has shown me something else. Sometimes with a prompt, I'll just start writing. Uh -huh. I've, learned to back off, I've learned to back off on that sometimes, but yeah. to think it through. Okay, where am I going? What, oh. what is my goal here? Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And, and if I don't have one, keep pitching around until I have one. And occasionally yeah. I've stopped. I haven't been able to write anything. Other times I'll, uh, an idea will click, and then suddenly I can't stop myself from writing. Yeah, and that idea yeah. of giving it, giving it, being a bit patient with it is, is important. And I think I extend that to the way I write haiku, too. I tend to work them out in my head a lot. So that by the yeah. time I write it down in a notebook... It's pretty well formed. I, I definitely will still edit afterwards, but um, I like to really work it out in my head. And you can do that with something as short as haiku. Well, sure. But you, and, and, and also, which I start, I do like it. It's funny you mentioned chess. I, I feel that way too, which is I do work some, like when I'm writing my, I write personal essays is really my thing. And uh, I have a basic idea, but I've learned a lot of times I'm sitting there and what I'm doing is I'm, I'm like a chess player. I'm testing moves and I think, well, I know that's not going to work. I know that's not going to work. I know that's not going anywhere. Whereas when I was a younger writer, I would have gone ahead and put it down and, and just seen where it went. But now I kind of know ahead of time where, whether an idea is worth pursuing or not but without putting a single word. That took years of practice. Yeah. And another thing I found is that uh, on the, in contrast to that, sometimes you write it down, that is a process of discovering yeah. where you need yeah, yeah. to go, and then you yeah. take out. And yeah. I've written some things where, in fact, this happens quite regularly, I'll start writing an essay and then find I can completely take out the first paragraph, just lop <laughs> yeah. it oh, off. Oh, God, yeah, yeah, and, yeah, yeah. And suddenly every, it, it, it's, I've, I've reached a, you know, a good speed in the second paragraph, and there's enough right. information there that I don't need to introduce it most of the time. Right. And, yeah, um, and sometimes same with sentences within paragraphs. You can take yeah. stuff out. Uh, but yeah. you clear your throat, and then you, you yeah. get going. Yeah, you kind of have to, because you have to figure out what you're doing, and then you hit. I always like it. I tell my students, I'm like, I'm like someone starting a fire, but with just like one of those, you know, the stick and the, they sort of, without, the, without a match, you know, and they sit there and they rub the stick, and then yeah. you get a little spark. I'm, I get a little spark, and I kind of blow on it, and then it catches fire, and then I'm off. But usually I have just the tiniest spark when I get going, you know, just the tiniest idea that I can follow in a, especially in an essay. And then it catches and, fire. And I also find sometimes that if I get an idea, I'll start writing, but I'll have no idea how it will end or yeah. how I'll bring something to a conclusion. And then yeah. something happens during the writing where, ah, that's it. That's how I yep. can end this. And, and yep. you just, it just clicks shut and, um, I forget who said that a good poem, you know, it's, it, it ends like a lid snapping shut. Um, yes. Somebody famous said that. Uh, but, yeah, <laughs> that, feeling, that feeling is is really wonderful when it happens. Oh, yeah. If it happens. Well, yes. And, you know, I was wondering about the haiku is, you know, for me, I can't write unless I feel like I discovered something. I just – I get bored. You know, I, I've got to be surprised. Even if – a lot of times I will even write essays about stories – based on stories I've told people. And so I have told the story many times and I've never written it. And even then I got to go in and I've got to say, okay, fine. You've told this story before, but now we got to write it and I got to find something in it I've never found before. So I'm always looking to be surprised. And I know that's got to be true of haiku too, but it's so short. I know it sounds like a silly question, but like, where, cause it seems like it could be over before you even start. Like, where does the surprise come in? 
tight? Yeah, um, well, I think that the surprise or turn is something you do want to aim for in a lot of haiku. Um, uh -huh. There's the technique um, in Japanese haiku that uses what's called a kireji or cutting word. The mm -hmm. kire means cut. And a yep. cutting word is a, it's like a spoken punctuation that's used only in haiku, not other Japanese writing. And right. it divides the poem into two parts. And the relationship uh -huh. of the two parts creates space and sometimes surprise, sometimes harmony, sometimes contrast. But you have one thing leaping to another. And I'll give you an example. Okay. Um, this is a haiku of mine. First snow. The children's hangers clatter in the closet. So uh, this is a memory of when I used to live in Winnipeg, um, uh -huh. we, when we used to go outside and play in the snow. And I remember one time hearing the, the, the uh, hangers clattering in the closet, which represented, yeah. oh, the kids have grabbed their coats and they're rushing out the door right. uh, because of this first snow. So it's the relationship of the two parts that tells the rest of the story. Uh, Seisen Sui in Japan referred to haiku as an unfinished poem which means that it really requires more than other poetry for a reader to enter into it and sort of yes, tell the rest yes. of the story. And it's that two wait. parts, I think, that, that wait, facilitate. Wait, wait, wait. Was that the whole poem? First snow, the children's hangers clatter in the closet. Was that the whole poem, or was that just the yep. first half of it? Oh, oh no, that's God. the whole poem. <laughs> All right. So and the, so, yes, okay, so it, it absolutely requires the maximum participation of the, of the reader. Yes, and the poem trusts that and yep. require, uh, to some degree, asks for, if it doesn't require, asks for an attentive reader to pay attention, to have empathy for the situation, to enter into it and right. tell the rest of the story. Yeah. And yeah. If, you've never, if you've never lived in a snowy climate and haven't experienced snow, you know, maybe that'll be harder, but you could right. try, you could imagine it. And at least yeah. you can picture the image of uh, children's hangers clattering in the closet yeah. uh, for whatever reason. Yeah, you know, I love that. It's in, and when I, when I work with students, I mean, the goal is always like when, with a joke. I love comedians. And I always say that the comedian starts the joke. The, the audience finishes, their laughter is them finishing. It's the comedian leaves things unsaid and it's what's unsaid that brings right. the laughter from the, and this is the artist's job is how much can I leave unsaid? Cause it's what the reader connects in their own mind. That's where the magic happens. And we're always balancing. Have we said a little too little? Have I said, have I, if I said too much, have I said, cause it's, cause what is too much for one might not be enough for the other. Right. We're and always one, trying to balance that. And one way of doing that, I think um, David Mamet, I think is maybe others have said this too, but I think he said in screenwriting, um, arrive late and leave early. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. So you, yeah. you don't describe what's happening. You just sort of arrive in the middle of the scene and you can imply right. what's, what's already happened. And then you That's leave right. early to imply what's going to happen. And you see yeah. that over and over in every television show or movie. Um, it's, a, it's a very useful technique. And I think a haiku will do that. And it's thus open-ended in what, happen, what is happening before and what will happen after. Right. And, you know, and well, you know, and, what people say when they don't like a poem or particularly poem is they'll say the same thing. I don't get it. Like, I don't like they you've left this room and they like, and, and the reader says, I don't like, I don't nothing, nothing. I don't get it. I'm not seeing what you're pointing to. I can't connect the wires in my mind. And this is what seems to me. Every artist is up against, whether it's a joke 
or a haiku or a, a movie that the that some audiences are going to make the connections and some just won't, right? And there's there's a tension, a larger tension too, in that um, you don't want to make it too accessible either. No. <laughs> uh, so well, no, you don't want to do all the work the, for them. Yeah, you don't want to spell everything out, um, and yet you don't want well. I don't want to be so obscure that my audience just scratches no. their, their heads. Right. Uh, so yeah. finding that, that delicate balance between the two is tricky, and it, it's going to vary for different people. Plus, some people are wired for certain kinds of poetry yeah. or not, and that includes haiku. Some people just don't don't care for haiku, and that's fine, whereas other people right. are just, just enthralled by it, excited by it, and, um, energized by these delicate moments of of perception that are, are so light, uh, right. seeming, and yet they may carry depths that, um, that reverberate in, in, um, ways that are sometimes unexpected. Yeah. Light. That's a very good, well, you've probably thought about this. That's a great word. It is light in a lot of ways. I mean, it's light to the touch. It feels to me, but it doesn't mean it's without substance, but it doesn't, it's not, it's like a light to the consumption too. It doesn't weigh you down. Right. So Basho, the earliest of the great Japanese haiku masters, the flowering of his progression in haiku, uh, he referred to as karumi, which means lightness. Mm-hmm. And it means to not manhandle your, your subject yeah. and to be sensitive, sensitive to subtleties. And the way I like to describe it is that it's like catching a soap bubble without popping it. Ah, I like it. And I like and it. And that's, and that if if you have that kind of sensitivity or sensibility when reading haiku, you begin to see, oh, this is how the poem has caught a soap bubble and right. enjoy it while it lasts. You know, it'll eventually pop. Right. Enjoy it right now um, because right. this is the moment. And in that sense, it's, it's very zen. And in fact, I was going to say earlier about attractions to haiku. Um, haiku is just one of many things I wrote, but I began to read about Taoism and Zen, and yeah. in that reading, I would encounter haiku, and some of the sensibilities between Zen and haiku were a part of the attraction to me. Later, I learned that it's more mostly a Western perception to think of haiku as a Zen poetry. It's not really oh, yeah. a Japanese perspective, um, oh. but the beats and and early translators in English uh, painted haiku with a Zen brush. Um, wow. And it's certainly part of the attraction, but um, and, and that's what drew me to it as well. But uh, um, it's not just that. And yet, that bubble, that momentarily held bubble, it, and the ephemerality of it is very zen-like. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And, and I'm, as I'm listening to you talk, I'm wondering, do you are you bilingual now? Have you taught yourself enough Japanese that you can write in Japanese also, or just English? <laughs> Just English. In fact, I once tried writing um, some haiku in Japanese, and I sent them to some Japanese friends who I normally correspond with regularly, and they're very responsive, and they yeah. didn't reply. Ah, no. Oh, <laughs> so <laughs> that was what I needed to know. <laughs> All right, so you're sticking to one language. All right, well, that's good. Yeah. I do and work so- with a co-translator. Uh, I've, um, uh, Emiko Miyashita and I have done numerous translations together. Um, oh, of okay. numerous numerous books, and she does the first pass, and then I do a much more refined English version, but she does the initial pass. And we've done books of, of waka, which is the older form of tanka, 
um, longer than a haiku. Um, wow. And one of our translations was in the back of a U.S. postage stamp uh, really? six years ago. Oh. Yeah, they printed 150 cool. million postage stamps with one of our cherry blossom tanka t- translations. That's awesome. Oh, you're on a you're immortal. That's it. It's official. You're awesome. You're awesome. Now, if only if if they only paid me a higher rate for 150 million. <laughs> yeah, you think right? Well, you take what you can get. Uh, yes. So you speak enough Japanese that you can translate it. You can do some translation. With help, she does yes. the first pass. So she does the first yes. pass, and then you kind of. Boy, I think. And so, uh, do the Japanese do they mind that we've uh, we've adopted? Because there's a lot of it taught and written here in the in the West. Do they care? Are they just glad to see it spreading worldwide? There's the general. I think feeling? there's a there's a mixture of reactions. Um, the Haiku International Association in Tokyo, uh, which is run as a sort of uh, amalgamation of of several of the leading national haiku. Uh, societies in Japan, they uh, are very happy to support worldwide haiku, and they they take an active role in, in, in being aware of what's going on. Uh, right. On the other hand, there are definitely those who think that haiku must and only be written uh, in Japanese, and yeah. that it's not possible out in other languages. And I don't know if that's uh, fair. Um, uh, if there are subtleties lost, well, there are subtleties gained, too. Language yeah. language differences make certain things easier in Japanese, but other things are easier in English. So sure. you, you gain and lose. And uh, I think between languages, there are some essentials. And I remember uh, when we started, there was a group of us that started the Haiku North America conference. It's held every two years around the continent. And uh-huh. the very first one was 1991. And one of the panels we convened was something like, what is essential to haiku? meaning right. in any language. And right. we talked about the kigo, the season word, this, that seasonal reference, and the kireji, the cutting word, and the two-part structure of a haiku, and what's unsaid between them. Um, we talked about the five senses. We talked about um, a clear and present images uh, in the here right. and now. Um, it's not about the future or usually not about the past, although right. you can write from memory, but you present your memory as if it's happening right. now. Right, right, um, and and illusion and there are other things that go on and yet a few things that you avoid like they tend to avoid uh, simile and metaphor because those are detours and not the thing itself um, right and they're right you can over rhyme will overpower up, up yeah, yeah, something as short yeah. as haiku so they tend yeah. to be avoided and there's a few other things that are essential and um, the fact that this this is an important thing to start the first conference with um, is is telling and I think it's still true to be aware of what what is universal in any any language in haiku, and right. yet in Japan, there are some poets that um, refer to haiku. You, uh, Japanese has three language scripts, and yeah, one of yeah. them is for um, sounding out foreign words. Right, and they refer to international haiku using those characters, which oh. broadcasts that oh these are foreign haiku. <laughs> right, sort of like putting haiku in quotation marks. <laughs> right. <laughs> Okay, fine, whatever. And you and know, yet, and yet they embrace uh, world haiku in many ways too. So it's a bit of both. You know, I understand. You know, it's it be, art. You know, it flows from the universal source to us all, and then whatever happens, happens. 
I like to think it's all good. You know, it's all trying to take us to the same lovely place by whatever means necessary. Because, you know, there's a lot of people who don't speak Japanese. And if they want to appreciate what the what haiku has to offer, they just, they'll never get it unless it's in English. They just won't because they're just never going to yeah. learn, right? So it's, it's generous to think that it's all going to a good place. But I one I, of the problems with the perception of haiku just as a 575 syllable counting exercise is it obscures these more literary uh, approaches and you'll get tons and tons of what can be called pseudo haiku. All they do is count syllables and there's no literary understanding at all. And yet these same people get really upset if they see a poem that's not 575. They say, well, that's not a haiku. And they have no clue that their perception is actually the violation rather than the preservation of the form. Oh, listen, you have got to see, I didn't know this until now and I'm a damn writer. You've got to look, go on a mission, change this so that all the elementary school and high school teachers across uh, this country stop with it. Never have known. I would not have. Did you, did you hear me sigh? <laughs> <laughs> I this, did hear you, sigh. you can't, you feel this is too big a task for you. No, no. Too, oh no. I, I am on that mission. I am on that okay, mission. Good. The problem is it's like moving a continent. I'm not kidding. Not even just an iceberg. It's like moving right. a continent. Um, oh, there are so many curriculum guides that. So when I teach in schools, I will tell people, you know, you don't have to write five seven five. But on your test, if you see a five seven five poem and you're asked to identify the form, it's you better haiku. say haiku. Right. Um, oh, yeah. God. Oh. And, uh, and textbooks. Well, here's yeah, the other textbooks problem. Textbooks are wrong. Me, and, yeah. If someone said, "What's a haiku?" Now I'd say it's not five seven five, and they say, well, "What is it?" I go. Uh, uh, call Michael. Well, I don't know. yes. <laughs> so that's that's the issue. If it's not if it's not five seven five, what is it? And I've written lots of essays about that. Um, right. I tend I tend to approach haiku using organic form. Um, do we have a couple of minutes for me to talk about why five seven five is prob- problematic? We we are going to extend our episode. Yes, go ahead. Okay, okay. We're so it out. the word haiku in English is two syllables. In Japan, it counts as three sounds, ha, i, ku. Right. How many syllables in the word Tokyo? That sounds, I think three, but you say it two, Tokyo. <laughs> so <laughs> we will often say Tokyo, which is three. In Japan, they'll say Tokyo, which sounds like two. Yeah. But it's actually four because it's what? two long vowels. So it's to-o, kyo-o. Oh, oh, geez, all right. And what they're counting is just different. And we would count the word sign as one syllable, but in Japanese yeah. they would count that as three sounds. Saya n. The n sound is counted as a separate sound in Japanese. Oh my god. All right. How so, confusing. All right. And furthermore furthermore, um they don't have consonant clusters and variable syllable lengths the way do we do. Right. Um we can say all their words are like saying radio ion. Five quick oh. syllables. Right. Or we could say stressed strengths borscht. Right. right. That's three syllables right. shorter than radio iron ion. Right. Um, right. But that's the problem. We have such variability. Okay. So if, if we be all Japanese uh, syllables are like the word jo, whereas we can say yeah. jo and joy, yeah. where yeah. the sound changes slightly, or we can add an s to it to make it joyce, yeah. or we can add a t to that to make it joist. We can add yep. a plural to that to make it joyce. 
All of those, except for Joe, have immediately departed from what the Japanese are counting in their haiku. So if you write 575, that's why I say it's a violation of the form in Japanese, not a preservation of it. And if they also use um, their words tend to have much, many more syllables per concept than ours do. So they right. will use up their 17 sounds far quicker than we do. Uh, so if you write 17 syllables in English, you're writing a poem with a different weight. It's like a, the size of a softball instead of a baseball. Uh, 100 yen does not equal $100. Right. Um, uh, a kilometer does not equal a mile kind of thing. Um, right. You know, you may be going 60 and think you're going right. the speed limit. <laughs> Kilometers Actually, per hour. But if I, I I take that back, if you if you think if you're going 100 kilometers an hour, that's the speed limit. But if you just translate the number and you go 100 miles per hour, you're breaking right. the speed limit. And that's really the issue oh, with boy. with the way people write 575. And yes, right. yeah. So I would just add one more thing on on this is that it's a choice. There isn't a direct equivalent, so you have to make a choice. And it's there's some compromises somewhere. And uh, if you choose to write 575 you're making a compromise in the fact that you're writing a longer poem than the Japanese, but you could choose to do that. The more important thing is actually whether you hit other targets. And if you do that, it is possible to write decent haiku that are 575. Just make sure, please, that you hit these other targets and be aware of them. Most people are taught in North America in ways that make them not aware of them. That's, that's, that's what makes me sigh. Well, Michael, all you can do is one at a time. I learned... All our listeners have learned, so we'll just keep spreading it out there. We'll just spread it out there one person at a time. We'll change it. It's a slow process, but it'll happen. It'll happen. My, this has been a fabulous conversation, Michael. I'm so glad I had you on. Uh, I'm not well, quite you. done with you, however. Uh, it, it, uh, I want you to, first of all, if people want to learn about you, connect you, they want to join, they want to go to some conference with you, have you come and teach, where, where can they find out? Where can they find you? Well, the first first place would be uh, on my website, which is called Grace Guts, G-R-A-C-E-G-U-T-S dot com, graceguts dot com, which is named after an E. Cummings poem. Yeah. Um, and I have lots of essays, book reviews, lots of poems, longer poems, haiku, and and uh, other poems, um, a bio list of upcoming appearances, that sort of thing. Lots to explore. And I also founded National Haiku Writing Month uh, about 10 years ago. And if you go to nahairimo.com, you can learn more about that. So that's N-A-H-A-I-W-R-I-M-O. Yeah, that's uh, it. We've got it on the, yeah, we got it right here. We've got it on our, on, our, on our website right here. People can read it there. Okay. Yeah. So, Nahairimo or Grace Guts, good. E. Cummings. My first poet that I ever just fell in love with was old Mr. Cummings. Did love his stuff. He was okay. for me too. Oh man, I'm, uh, I'm on the advi- on the editorial board for the Cummings Society Journal. Oh, you are. I'm pretty, oh. pretty passionate about Cummings. And if you want want a, a common myth, most people think his name should be all lowercase. That's actually not what the poet preferred. And there are some excellent really? essays about about the normal proper treatment is to initial cap everything. Oh. Um, and that's the now official I'm, policy of the Cummings Society and his publisher. Yeah, the lower casing was just something his designers did for a while. Oh, weird. Okay, now I know. All right, <laughs> I got one more question. Michael, you ready? Yes. Yes. Once you finish this sentence, if writing has taught you anything, taught you what? Uh, the f- a phone cut out there. I missed the question. Oh, 
if writing has taught you anything, it's taught you what? Awareness and attention. And here I'd like to invoke Mary Oliver. She said, instructions for leading, living a life. Pay attention. Oh, now I have to remember to say it correctly. Um, <laughs> um, oh, I'm, I'm forgetting um, how, how it goes. Um, Pay attention. Uh, yeah, how does this go? See, my memory has failed me. It's okay. It's okay. But writing has taught you to pay attention. Yes, it has. Um, it's going to drive you crazy. You know what's going to happen, Michael? Yes. We're going to hang up, and you're going to remember. And then I'll remember. Yeah. Yes. Um, That'll be okay. So it's Mary Oliver. She says, pay attention, and there's something else. Oh, yes, I got it now. Oh, good. Pay attention. Be astonished. Tell about it. Oh. And it's that idea of being astonished that that is part of the haiku sensitivity to the world. But a key factor is tell about it. She doesn't say write about it. No. Tell about tell it. Tell about it. Which is yeah. broader. And I think I think that's the, at the heart of haiku. In fact, the very first paragraph of William Higginson's The Haiku Handbook, which is the best book about learning haiku, the very first paragraph says the purpose of haiku is to share them. You share them because somebody else will have the same emotional reaction you had. And I think by sharing that reaction, it's like talking about comedy. We were earlier, when you tell yeah. a joke, notice what the audience does. They look at each other side to side yeah. in the audience. Yeah. And it's because they're sharing it. They're sharing it not, not only with you, but the people next to them. And that's the beauty of haiku, is this act of sharing, this commonality, this um, um, empathy that goes on and sort of vulnerability that goes on with it too. And that to me is the attraction for haiku. So haiku has taught me attention. That's great. Michael, this is an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. Well, thank you. All right. Take it. All right. Pay attention, people. It's true. Pay attention and be astonished and share it. I love that. I love that. All right, everybody. I'll be back here again next week. I want to thank my fabulous producer, RJ Jeffries. Go out there, pay attention, see something you love. 